we're going to talk about the future, and where uh, we started this series, as you know, a long time ago. Please allow me to maybe summarize. Uh, I wanted for us to see an orderly chronological alignment of the peaks of prophetic events in God's prophetic mountain range. And some of the wonderful and gifted folks in our church have provided this visual for us. And so I mentioned to you uh, uh, that the next key prophetic event uh, for us to look to is the rapture. And it could come at any time. There's nothing that has to take place before the rapture. That's when believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And what happens to us? Well, great rejoicing. Finally, we're promoted to his literal presence. And then we'll come before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sin. You see, that's already taken been taken care of for us by faith on the cross. So this is the time when rewards are disseminated uh, on the basis of how we use the resources God gave us, spiritual gifts, uh, monetary resources, time. Surely God can't be mocked. And so we, we will give an account for how we conducted ourselves as believers when once we're saved. And then following the judgment seat, we spoke about the introduction to the world scene of this uh, horrific character, the Antichrist, who will rally the world's attention, uh, who will, with a messianic fervor, even fool some into thinking he is the Savior and the Messiah. And under his rule and leadership, there will be a unanimity of government interests and religious interests and economic interests and international interests. Terrible, terrible deception when people attribute to the Antichrist what ought to be reserved for the real Christ. And so uh, then we followed the introduction of the Antichrist with this period of great tribulation, a seven-year period of time characterized by the outpouring of the wrath of God on a sin-sick and rebellious world under the domination of Antichrist. I mentioned to you, we Christians will not experience this uh, because that's our destiny, the rapture. We've been caught up and removed from this horrible reality, not because of any greater merit, but because we have accepted the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death for our sin. And so this tribulation culminates in a great war, Armageddon. Some of us here have recently returned from Israel, and we stood on a Mount Megiddo or the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon. And we envisioned in that valley uh, the staging area for the last great battle, Armageddon. I tell you, the whole world and its population would be destroyed except for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the tribulation period, and the battle of Armageddon here returns rather gloriously the Lord Jesus Christ. It won't be secretive and it won't be subtle. 
oh no, everyone will know. And so we're warned, if someone says, here he is or there he is, don't you believe it, because he will be coming after uh, the battle of Armageddon. And when he comes, he not only puts an end to this terrible battle, but he also ushers in that period of time, the millennium. And that's what we introduced last week. And we spoke about uh, the millennium and meaning a 1,000-year period of time characterized by two specific distinctives which are both rather pleasant to think of. And uh, the first, as we mentioned last week, is that the saints will reign with Christ. And the second is that Satan is restrained during that period of time by Christ. Aren't you frustrated in the day? Don't you want to be in a position of influence greater than ever before as you see those who are influencing our world for ill? Don't you want to just shout from the mountaintops about the value of life and how we must protect the unborn? Don't you just want to scream out about what the real definition of marriage is? Don't you just want to have impact on the world? And don't you feel frustrated because in many cases we're kind of boxed in and there are voices, I think, uh, uttering uh, uh, their philosophy louder than we do. But I'm telling you, during the millennial reign of Christ, uh, it is his people, you and I, who will occupy all positions of influence and government and education and law enforcement and all the rest. And so the millennial reign of Christ is a marvelous time. Also, Satan is restrained during this time. That is wonderful. I mean, the existence of Satan is the explanation, really, for the world situation today. It cannot otherwise be explained. There is no rational explanation for what's happening in our world. The terrible deception, blatant leading astray of people by those who can't back up what they're saying. Well, the only explanation is that there is a, an evil one, a tempter, a deceiver, who's very active, perhaps more active than ever before. But thank God he will be restrained during this 1,000 years of an earthly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And boy, is that good news. But something happens, and we read about it in the scripture. For some mysterious reason, this Satan is released from his confinement. And I'm not making it up. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So during the millennial reign of Christ, a mighty strong angel, we read about it, to whom is entrusted a special key and chains, in other words, authority from on high, confines Satan to what it was termed the abyss, which in the original language means the bottomless pit. 
And so it's kind of a wonderful thousand year period of time. Think about a Satan-free world. I don't know if we could even imagine it. He's the father, the author of lies. Imagine he's not around anymore. But this verse says he's released after 1,000 years. And what happens, verse 8 tells us, is that he comes out to deceive the nations. Oh my goodness, that's just what he did before his confinement. And now when he's released, notice he resumes that which perhaps is his number one strategy deception. He deceives the nations. Literally, that means the various and diverse people groups of the entire world. And it says they are in the four corners of the earth, and that means he extends his influence north, south, east, and west throughout the then existing world. And then it says Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war, and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And so Satan is released. He continues to, to deceive all people groups in every corner of the world, and he has followers. Well, this might be a bit of a surprise to you because The millennial reign of Christ is characterized by so many wonderful and good things. Believers make their way into the millennium. Tribulation saints, those who came through this period of time, having been martyred for the faith, uh, participate in what's called the first resurrection, and they enter into the millennial reign of Christ. So who are these who follow the deceiver in an orchestrated worldwide rebellion against Christ? And there's a lot of them, uh, because it says, doesn't it, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Where do they come from? Well, Believers in the millennium have offspring, and a a lot of them. They're believers, but they reproduce, and they have a lot of time to reproduce. A thousand years is a lot of time. You can knock out a lot of babies in that period of time. And not only that, did you know People will be living longer than at present during the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, Let me share with you Isaiah uh, chapter 65 verse 20, which I believe is a reference to the millennium. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Oh my goodness. No more infant mortality. Can you imagine a world where babies don't struggle to live? They live. Or an old man. There won't be even an old man who does not live out his days. That's really good. So from both ends of the spectrum, the baby will have longevity. The older man will have longevity. And it says, for the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. 
today for someone to reach that marvelous age. We, well, I think we want to bless that person because we're blessed by that person. We say, great, congratulations to you. This is wonderful. But in that day, it will be normative. And the exception to the rule will be someone who doesn't live that long. So you have people living longer and you have a thousand years. And so, oh my goodness, you're talking about lots and lots of kids. And that's really, really good, except Not all those kids will follow in the ways of their believing parents. Instead, they'll rebel against Jesus the Messiah and will follow instead Satan. You say, how could it be? But don't you see, he's a deceiver. It's through deception. And so it is these who become the ones who participate with Satan in a war. You know, I might have referred to the battle, it's really the campaign of Armageddon as the last battle. And uh, I was, uh, I think, maybe uh, wrong in saying so because that this is really not the last battle uh, at the end of the tribulation. No, what we're reading about here is actually the last battle. There will be another a systematically widely orchestrated assault on God and his people during the millennial reign of Christ. In fact, uh, those who come against him are referred to as Gog and Magog. Well, that's a a term familiar to many of you. We read about it first way back in Ezekiel. Uh, where Magog is referred to as Israel's enemy assaulting her from the north. And Gog is thought by some maybe not to be another group as much as the leader of Magog. I don't know more than what I just told you. We're free to differ about it. We do know, and surely you can get the sense, these terms are used to represent those who during the millennial reign will rebel and assault the earthly kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are affiliated with him. And so it goes on to say in Revelation 20 verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth. Well, where did that broad plain come from? Well, folks, during the tribulation period, there will be such cataclysm that the very form, the topography of the earth will change. And it will be largely flattened out because of the terrible outpouring of the wrath of God. You could read about it. So geographically, things will be different. Topographically, you will see mostly a flattened earth, not a mountainous earth. Hence, the warring, rebellious people groups of the earth will have a great plane on which to assemble as they assault the kingdom of God. Hence the broad plain. And it says they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. 
So what specifically is their target? It's the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So where is the camp of the saints? Well, it is at the beloved city. And what is the beloved city? I ask you, what is the beloved city? It's Jerusalem. You know it. I know it. And the evil one knows it. Satan knows for whatever reason. From God's point of view, Jerusalem is the beloved city. Do you know he doesn't describe any other city in the Bible with such affection? He, God, refers to Jerusalem as the beloved city. Now, you may not believe it, but I assure you, Satan does, and that's why he wants it. And that explains to me what's going on in the Middle East today. God is going to return. The Lord Jesus is going to return at his second coming, and he's not returning to Houston. He's returning to Jerusalem, specifically the Mount of Olives. Some of us were just there. We stood on it. So too will the Lord. It will split in two, half of it going north, half of it south, and he will make his triumphal entry through the golden gates through which he passed on his way to suffer and die for sin. He passed through those gates first as the Lamb of God, but when he comes at the second coming, oh no, it won't be the same. He'll come as the Lion of Judah. Satan read the Bible. He doesn't want it to happen. Do you know what exists now at those gates? They're all bricked in, and there's a Muslim cemetery right there by the gates in a vain attempt to keep Jesus out. Not going to work. So Satan in desperation thinks if he can gain control of the city, the beloved city, in which there'll be a rebuilt temple, in which believers, Christ ones, devoted followers, that is the camp of the saints. Saints meaning not perfect ones, you know that, but set apart ones. All of us set apart for the glory of God will be there with him. That will be the central capital of his kingdom on earth. And Satan wants to interfere with it. And so if you can get control over it, I don't know, maybe by putting a mosque smack dab in the center of the the platform on which the temple is to rebuild? I don't know, maybe that'll keep Jesus from receiving worship. You think it will? No, me neither. So it's the camp of the saints. And and you know why the camp of the saints are there at the beloved city? Because they want to be near their Lord. We will want to be close to him. Jerusalem is mentioned about 800 times in the Bible. More than any other place. Oh, by the way, as a side point, do you know how many times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Koran? Zero. 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 There's never been an interest in Jerusalem like there has come to be since 1948. (laughs) Once the Jews went back in, This is a real snub to the Quran, which says God has removed his promises from the Jews. 
wow, it looks like he fulfilled his promises to the Jews. They're back in the land. Wow, this actually disproves Muhammad and the Quran. We've got to get rid of the Jews. We've got to get them out of Jerusalem. So, you know, all this stuff, let's divide it. We'll have two capitals and all this. If you ask me my opinion, you don't even have to ask. Here it comes. <laughs> That's a big mistake. You can't give away what God gave you to keep. You can't exchange your inheritance, like Esau did, remember? For a mess of pottage, for soup. You can't exchange land for peace when there is no peace except in a relationship with the Prince of Peace. So I don't know the direction our country is going to go. I don't know. I just hope as members of the church we follow God. So anyway, Camp of the Saints, beloved city, and Satan and his followers come against them. But look, fire came down and devoured them. You see, we will not have to fight in this ultimate last battle. The Lord will take care of things. And then it says in verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you know the beast is this character, the Antichrist. He's actually a human, but he's a beastly human. And so according to the prior chapter, Revelation 19, he's already been cast into something called the lake of fire. So too has the false prophet, and God will cast the devil into it as well. Now the lake of fire is different than the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit was temporary. The lake of fire is permanent. You see, it's different. And so Satan will join the beast and the prophet in the lake of fire throughout eternity. And so the unholy trinity, the counterfeit trinity, this will be their destiny. Now, folks, we began our little discussion tonight by talking about the release of Satan from his confinement in the bottomless pit after 1,000 years so now let's address the obvious question, why? And let me give you three um, responses and you could take them or leave them. You, you just put your thinking cap on. If this doesn't fit, then just leave it behind. I think Satan is released to show us, number one, the extent and depth of human sin. Folks, under the best of circumstances, the millennium. And next week, Lord willing, I'll read to you from Scripture, in case you're not familiar, uh, descriptive passages of this time. The lion lies down with the lamb. All hostilities, even in the natural realm, are removed. It's a marvelous time. It couldn't get any better, but even under the best of conditions, even under the most perfect environment, even in the presence 
of the Lord Jesus, people still turn away from him. As in the Garden of Eden when everything was provided, so too during the millennium when the Lord Jesus once again will walk with man. Even then, under the best of circumstances, there's just something in us that drives us away from God, even under the best circumstances. The millennium is a perfect environment. However, a perfect environment cannot produce a perfect heart. Do you notice the efforts of the world to change all the externals of life, whether it be the environment, whether it be the economy, whether it be the educational system, whether it be health care? I didn't say these are bad things. I'm just saying they're vain things. I don't know if you knew this, but it's not going to make a difference in the internal environment. See here, this is where the real pollution is. Don't talk to me about going green. This is where the real defilement is on the inside. And the reason why people then, now, and every age resist Christ is that people prefer sin. Don't you? Of course. That's why salvation is always a miracle. It really overcomes our human inclination to be redeemed because we would rather say no to a savior and yes to sin. So even in his very presence and in the most perfect environment, we find out as soon as Satan is released, people turn their backs on the savior. So his release, I think, reveals in a more graphic and dramatic way than at any other time our sinful inclination. During this 1,000-year period of time, folks, there is no war, there is no environmental pollution, there is no need for universal health insurance because there will be no poverty. There are no subpar schools. There is... There is no inner city. There, there is no segregation. There are no second-class citizens. And yet, people still produce sinners because that's all people can produce. We're conceived in sin. I don't care how cute that little thing is. That's a sinner ready to prove it to parents. So we have no choice. We can only produce sinners. And a number of those sinners, even during the millennium, reject the Savior. So Satan's been confined for 1,000 years. He's then suddenly released. And before you know it, we see the depths of human sin revealed again. So that's the first reason, it seems to me, why Satan is released. Make no mistake about it. We are not inherently good. All the uh, laudatory comments made about humankind and how we can do it and let's just get together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, whatever the deal is, and save the world. It's not possible because no good thing dwells in us. It doesn't take faith to believe that, does it? 
All you got to do is read the front page of any newspaper and you'll see human nature. It isn't good. So, so, so that's one reason why Satan is released, to show us even in the best of circumstances, we can't blame our problem on a disadvantaged environment. That is nonsense. We can't blame it on a dysfunctional family. We can't blame it on economic deprivation. It's sinful defilement with which we are born. Now, there's a second reason, it seems to me, why uh, Satan is released. Uh, He's released to show us, first, the extent and depth of human sin, and second, the unchangeably evil nature of Satan. Folks, he's confined for 1,000 years. That's a lot of time to think. And as soon as he gets out, Notice what it says back in verses 7 and 8. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, look, and will come out to deceive the nations. He went in as a deceiver. He comes out as a deceiver. Would it take you a thousand years to kind of get with the program and repent? Well, if you are unchangeably evil... 10,000 years won't make a difference. So, Satan is released, number one, to reveal human nature, but second, his release also reveals his unchangeably evil nature. And then I think there's one other reason why he's released. He's released to show us, first, the depth of human sin, second, the unchanging nature of Satan, And third, the righteous judgment of God. We read about eternal torment for those who have refused Christ as Savior. We read about Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet being cast eternally into the lake of fire where there will be eternal torment. And we read about All the ungodly, those who have refused the pardon freely offered by Christ, they join uh, Satan and the beast and the false prophet in this eternally horrific place, the lake of fire. And you have a tendency to back away and say, God, isn't that a little severe? Isn't that a little stiff? Aren't you supposed to be loving? The lake of fire is hell. A most unpopular topic. I would rather think of God as a teddy bear who just, you know, wraps his arm around me. He is loving Abba Father. But he's intensely, irreversibly holy and cannot even stand in the presence of sin. He's done everything necessary to solve our inherent sin problem. But if one says, No, I choose to be dominated by sin and self and Satan instead of Savior, that person could not hold God responsible. If your sin is not 
judged in Christ for you, it will be judged in you for eternity. Those are the choices. And a loving God tells us about it before the fact. I beseech you, do something to assure yourself of your eternal destiny now. Do something now to be assured of your future. There's only two options. A holy God must judge sin. Because he's so loving, he judged his own son. Can you imagine it as our substitute? If you say no to that, then you're giving in to the greatest deception foisted upon the world, and that is that God won't hold you accountable. I think the number one deception of Satan is that there is no judgment to come, that God could be bought. That he just looks the other way. You know what the truth is? He makes note of every sinful thought, word, and behavior which comes from our sinful hearts. And those very, that very record of sinful inclinations is what will testify against us when we stand before him. Not if, when we stand before him. I beseech you as God mercifully is enabling you, even as we sit here. Leave here certain that the Lord Jesus has absorbed the penalty of your sin for you and instead granted you a total and complete merciful pardon. You don't have to fear the future. You don't have to worry about the judgment if you accept the fact that the Lord Jesus, God's Son, has been judged in your place. Sin is a horrific thing, and the holiness of God is uncompromised. But what about His grace? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is simply greater than all my sin. Maybe you'll say tonight, Lord Jesus, I accept that. I don't want the sin to be on my side of the ledger. I accept the fact that you took it and put it on your side of the ledger and paid for it by suffering and excruciating death on a cross in my place. And now on my side of the ledger is stamped case dismissed and somehow your righteousness is put on my account so that there's no indebtedness there anymore. That is to say, to pay for my sin if there's any indebtedness, it's the debt which I owe you now to be grateful throughout eternity. Lord Jesus, I pray to you that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you might impress upon the ones perhaps here tonight 
overwhelmed now with a recognition of their sin that they need you as Savior. There's no other option. Either they account for their sin themselves and be judged for it, or they say, oh, thank you for forgiving me through shedding of your precious blood. And now I acknowledge you rose from the dead and are willing to take up your abode in my life, thus changing me from the inside because that's the real polluted environment. So come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me, I am a sinner. Make me a son, a daughter who reflects your image more and more each day. And Lord, I can be thrilled by the prospect of the future instead of terrorized by it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.